last call for Sector 9G by Lee Brackett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Kesserick of Southern Ohio. Last Call for Sector 9G by Lee Brackett. Two. Baya sat on the bed and watched him pack. She was from one of the worlds of Mintaka and as humanoid as they came, not very tall but very well shaped, and colored one beautiful shade of old bronze from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet, except for her mouth, which was a vivid red. It seems funny, she said, to think of you not being here tomorrow. Will you die of missing me? Probably, for a day or two. I was comfortable. I hate upheavals. Durham reached across her for his small stack of underwear. She was wearing the yellow silk thing that made her skin glow by contrast. He saw that it was dubiously clean about the neck, and when he paused to kiss her, he noticed the tiny lines around her mouth and eyes, the indefinable look of wear and hardness that was more destructive to beauty than the mere passing of years. Yesterday they had been two of a kind, part of the vast backwash left behind by other people's successes. Today he was far above her, and he was glad. The least you could do, she said, would be to make this a really big evening, but I suppose you couldn't run to that. I've got money. Burke had given him some, but that was for expenses, and he would neither mention it nor touch it. Artie brought a very good price. So did the furniture. There was nothing left in the apartment but the bed, and even that was sold. He had bought back a few of his better belongings, and he still had a wad of credits. He felt good. He felt joyous and expansive. He felt like a man again. He poured two drinks and handed one to Baya. All right, he said. Here's to one big last evening the biggest. They had cocktails in a bar called the Moonraker because it was at the highest point in the hemisphere of the city. It was the hour between sunset and moonrise when the tower stood sharply defined against a sky of incredible dark blueness with the brighter stars pricked out in it and the dim canyons at the feet of the towers were lost in the new night, spectral, soft and lovely. And the night deepened and the lights came on. They wandered for a while among the high-flung walkways that spanned the upper levels of the towers so that people need not spend half their lives in elevators. They skirted the vast green concourse from which the halls of government rose up white and unadorned and splendid. They only skirted one corner of it because this galactic Capitol Hill ran for miles, dominating the whole official complex and one enormous building of it was fitted up so that the non-humanoid members of Universal Parliament could attend the sessions in comfort, never leaving their especially pressurized and congenially poisonous suites. Between humanoid and non-humanoid, there were many scientific gradations of form, but for governmental purposes it boiled down simply to oxygen breather or non-oxygen breather. Human or not, 
said Durham, standing on an upper span, with the good liquor burning bright inside him. Human or not, they're only men like me. What they've done, I can do. This is dull, said Baya. Dull, said Durham. He shook his head in wonderment, staring at her. She was beautiful. Tonight she wore white, and her hair curled softly on her neck, and her mouth was languorous, and her eyes, her eyes were hard. They were always hard, always making a liar out of that pliant, generous mouth. Doll, he said, no wonder you never got anywhere. She flared up at that and said a few things about him. He knew they were no longer true, so he could afford to be amused by them. He smiled and said, Let's not quarrel, Baya. This is goodbye, remember? Come on, we'll have a drink at the Miran. They floated down on the bright spiderweb levels of the walkways, drifting east, stopping at the Miran and then going on to another drinking place, and then to another. The walks were thronged with other people, people from hundreds of stars, thousands of worlds. People of an infinite variety of sizes, shapes, and colors, dressed in every imaginable and unimaginable fashion. Ambassadors, MPs, wives and mistresses, courtiers, calculator jockeys, topologists and graph men, office girls, hairdressers, janitors, pimps, you name it. Durham saw them through a golden haze and loved them because they were the city and he was a part of them again. He was out of the backwash of not being. Pawtree had had to give in, and this footling errand to some dust speck nobody ever heard of was simply a necessary device to save his own face. All right, Hawtree. Fine. We will go along with the gag, and you may inform the haughty Miss Hawtree, who can, believe us, be also the naughty Miss Hawtree, that we don't know if we want her back or not. We'll see. Take me with you. Baya was saying. Durham shook his head. Lone trip, honey. Can't possibly. Are you ashamed of me, Lloyd? That's it. You're ashamed to take me to Earth. No. No. Now, Baya... He looked at her. His vision was a bit blurred by now, and he could see just enough background to wonder how the devil they got to this closed-in-looking drinking place. But Baya's face was clear enough. She was crying. Now, Baya, honey, it's not that. It's not that at all. Then why can't I go with you to Earth? Because, listen, Baya, can you keep a secret? He laughed, and his own laughter sounded blurred, too. Promise? Promise. I... Dead stop. The words rattled on his tongue but remained unspoken. Why? Was it because of Baya's eyes that wept tears but had no sorrow in them? He could see them quite clearly, and they were not sorrowful at all, but avid. I promised, Lloyd. You can tell me. There was a table under his hands with an exotically patterned cloth on it. He had no memory of having sat down at it, there was a wall of plasticoid cement covered with a crude mural in bright primaries. There was a low, vaulted ceiling, also painted. 
There were no windows. How did we get here? Durham asked stupidly. It's underground. It's just a place, Faya said impatiently. Then she said sharply, What's the matter with you? Blood and fumes hammered together in his bulging temples, and his back felt cold. Where's the men's room, Baya? Her mouth set in anger and disgust. She called, Varnick? A tall, powerful man with a very long neck and skin the color of a ripe plum came up to the table. He wore an apron. Baya said, Better take him there, Varnick. The plum-colored man took him and ran him to a door and put him through it. From there, a serval took over. It was very efficient. Are you through, sir? God, no. Not nearly. One more word and you would have been through. Forever. Drunken blabbermouth Durham. Smart aleck Durham. Would-be big shot Durham. Ready to babble out his secret and blow his last chance of a comeback. Why did Baya have to be so insistently curious? Why, indeed? He began to feel both sick and scared. After a time, he made it to the row of basins and splashed cold water on his face and head. There was a mirror above the basin. He looked into it. Hello, bum, he said. Face it, Durham. You're a drunken bum. You are exactly what Willa Paulson said you were. What Susan Hawtrey said you were. What they all said you were. You get a second chance and you go right out and get drunk and blow it. Or almost. Another minute and you'd have blabbed everything you know to Baya. Baya, who cried because he wouldn't tell her, who had brought him to this rat hole. He took a clearer look at it when he went shakily out of the men's room. The place was almost empty and it had a close, smothery feeling. Durham had never liked these underground streets, this vaguely unsavory demi-world that wound itself around the foundations of the city. It was considered smart to go slumming here, but this place was somehow wrong. There were a man and a woman at a table across the room, a young, pale green couple who pretended too carefully not to see him. There was Varnick, the plum-colored proprietor, at a tall desk beside the main door and there was Baya at their table. She handed him a glass when he came over. Feel better? I ordered you a sedative. Without sitting down, he put the glass to his lips. It did not taste like any sedative he could remember, and he thought he had tried them all. I don't want it. Don't be a fool, Lloyd. Take it. Her eyes were cold now, and he was suddenly quite sure why he had been brought here. Durham said softly, Good night, tramp. Good night and goodbye. He ran around the table and made a rush for the entrance. Varnick stepped from the tall desk to bar his way, holding out a piece of paper. Sir, he said, your check. Durham heard three chairs scrape behind him. He did not pause. He bent and drove the point of his shoulder as hard as he could at the spot just above Varnick's wide belt. Varnick let go a gasping sigh and wheeled away. Durham went out the door. The underground street was brightly lighted. It ran straight to right and left, 
under a low roof and disappeared on either hand around a right-angle turn. Durham went to the left for no particular reason. There were people on the street. He dodged among them, running. They stopped and stared at him, and there was an echo of other feet behind him, also running. He sped around the corner, and it occurred to him that he was completely lost, that he did not even know what part of the city lay above him, or how far. There were different levels to this undercity, following down the foundations, the conduits and tubes and sewers and pumping stations. For the first time, he began to feel genuinely trapped and genuinely afraid. The street ran straight ahead until it ended against a buttressed foundation wall. There were doors and windows on either side of it. People lived here. There were joints, some fancy exotic for the carriage trade, others just joints. A couple of smaller streets opened off it, darker and more winding. Durham plunged into one, pausing briefly to look back. Fleeting like deer around a corner were the young, pale green couple who had sat at the other table in Varnix. There was something about the purposeful way they ran that sent a quiver of pure terror through Durham's insides. He ran again, as hard as he could, wondering who the devil they were and what they wanted with him. What did anyone want with him and the small bit of a secret he carried? The narrow street wound and twined. Clearly echoing along the vault of the roof, he could hear footsteps. One, two, coming fast. He saw an opening no wider than a crack in the wall. He turned into it. It was quite dark in there, and he knew he could not go much farther, and that fact added to his burden of shame. There had been a time when this much of a sprint would hardly have breathed him. He tottered on, looking for a place to hide in, and there wasn't any, and his heart banged and floundered against his ribs, and the muscles of his thighs were like wet strings. There was a square opening with blank walls all around it and a great big manhole cover in the middle. There was the way he had come in, and there was another narrow way he might have come out, but Varnick was coming through it, running a little crooked and breathing hard. He stopped when he saw Durham. Baya, panting up behind, almost ran into him. Varnick grunted and sprang. With feeble fierceness, Durham resisted. It got him nowhere. The plum-colored man struck him several times out of pure pique, cursing Durham for making trouble, for bruising his gut, for making him run like this. Baya stood by and watched. Will you behave now? Varnick demanded. He whacked Durham again, and Durham glared at him out of dazed eyes and felt the world tilt and slide away from him. Suddenly there were new voices, footsteps, confusion. He fell, what seemed a long way, but was really only to his hands and knees. The young couple had come into the square space. They were small, lithe people, muscled like ocelots, and their skin color was a pale green, very pretty, and characteristic of several different races, but no good for identification here. The girl's tunic had slipped aside over the breast, and the skin there was a clear gold, like new country butter. They both had guns in their strong little fists, and they were speaking over Durham to Varnick and Baya. We would question this man alone. Oh no, said Varnick angrily. You don't get away with that. 
Thaya bent over Durham. Come on, lover, she said. Get up. Her voice was cooing. To the stranger, she said, That wasn't our deal at all. You failed, said the girl with the two-colored skin, and she fired a beam with frightening accuracy, exactly between them. A piece of the wall behind them fused and flared. Varnick's eyes came wide open. Well, he said, well, if that's the way you feel about it. He turned. Faya hesitated, and the muzzle of the gun began to move her way. She snarled something in her own language and decided to go after Varnick. Durham got his hands and feet bunched under him. He didn't know what he was going to do, but he knew that once he was left alone with the two small fleet strangers, he would eventually talk, and after that, it would not matter much what happened to him. He said to them, hopefully, you have the wrong man. I don't know. There were five of them in the small space. There were the two couples facing each other and Durham on his knees between them. And then there was something else. There was a spiky shadow, perfectly black, of undetermined size and nameless shape, except that it was spiky. Baya did not quite scream. She pressed against Varnick, and they both recoiled into the alley mouth. The young couple paled under their greenness, and they, too, drew back. Durham crouched on the ground. The shadow bounded and rolled and leaped through the air and hung cloud-like over Durham's head. Suddenly it shrieked out, in a high, toneless voice like that of a deaf child, a clatter of gibberish in which one syllable stood clear, repeated several times. Chub, said the shadow. Chub, chub, chub. End of section two.